Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Uh, my name is Joe, I'm associate minister here at Real Life, and uh, it's my pleasure to be with you here today as uh, we continue on a conversation on Between Two Sundays. And before I get started, I need to make you aware of something. Uh, if you grabbed notes on your way in, hopefully you were able to get some. They look very different than uh, typically how we do notes. Uh, at the top of your notes, you'll see uh, the verses, the scripture that we're going to be exploring today uh, during our time together. And then at the bottom, you're going to see our, our take home, our, our, uh, the things I want you to consider as you leave this place. And then the middle is blank, and that is intentional. Wasn't that I was just lazy this week? That is intentional. Uh, because I want you to listen this morning. I would invite you in to hear and then allow God to speak to you. And so as things are being talked about and we're exploring different ideas, God's going to speak to you and you're going to need to write that down. So I don't want to put that in front of you. I'm inviting you into listening and hearing the voice of God. And at the time that something stands out, you're just going to write it down and take your own notes. And so that's what we're doing with those this morning. Uh, we started a discussion between two Sundays, which is an exploration of what it means to be the church between two Sundays, right? The, the, here at Real Life, we believe that the, the church exists to go out there. Is, the, this is something we do, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it's amazing, but really, the, uh, the, the work of being a disciple who makes more disciples, who is being the church out there, begins after this service, where we go out there and we be the people that God calls us to be. And for us to really uh, come into uh, that reality, we have to understand uh, that we have to be in relationship with other people. Uh, it's a non-negotiable, okay? You cannot do Christianity alone, all right? So I'm going to maybe bust some bubbles tonight. You need people in your life. And Justin did a great job last week introducing this uh, topic by exploring what are the building blocks for real uh, authentic relationships. And so we talked about things like authenticity, transparency, vulnerability. Uh, we talked about these elements that, that create these building blocks, things like truth and trust and how all relationships are built on these, these foundational elements that, that we, we explore as we go out through the week. And uh, the challenge was for us to be in relationship with each other. And so um, as we continue on this conversation, I get the pleasure of talking about uh, with you or the difficulty of talking about with you is, is the reality of, of when it goes wrong. Um, when really uh, our title is When Trouble Comes. Because life isn't static, is it? It, it isn't simple. Um, it's, it's difficult. Uh, there are highs, but that's often met with a bunch of lows. Uh, there are good times, but that's often uh, off the back of really difficult times. Uh, we experiencing, uh, experience things in life like hardship, trials, suffering, Disappointment, betrayal, loss, anger, all of these things are things we experience in life. And so it should come to no surprise when I say life can be hard. And this is where we go, yeah, no doubt, Joe. All right? So the reality is what I'm going to explore with you this morning is, is how we actually get through it. And for us to have the conversation of how we get through it when trouble comes, we have to have a conversation about three things. We have to talk about how olive oil is made. 
We have to talk about solitary confinement and prison reform, and we have to talk about the most important meal of the day because, yeah, that's what you talk about when things go wrong, right? No, stay with me. Stay with me. We're going we're gonna to go down the journey together, and by the end of it, hopefully, it all makes a little more sense. So let's begin with how do you make olive oil. When I uh, used to come home on Sundays, one of my favorite TV shows to put on as we were just resting was uh, How It's Made. It was on the Discovery Channel, and you'd see all these different things of how it was made and uh, the intricacies of things. And, uh, um, but, uh, uh, so I love this exploration of how things get made and how olive oil gets made. Well, in, uh, in, in our time, in our day, olive oil uh, gets made like this. Um, there's harvested these olives out of, off of an olive tree, and yes, this is a favorite olive tree. I tried to find a real one, but couldn't. Um, and um, I went to a store. I went to Zamzo. I said, do you have olive trees? They go, are you from California? I'm like, <laughs> apparently that's a question that gets asked a lot. Um, so I found this one, but olives get harvested and they get put inside of something called a centrifuge. A centrifuge is this large cylinder um, device that rotates at a rapid speed, kind of like the Galvatron at the fair, right? I don't know if it's called that anymore, where it spins around so fast and you're like going up the side of the wall, like that kind of idea. Uh, they use this in medicine as well. You might watch a CSI or something. They put the little vial in the thing and it spins around real quick. What that does is that that force of the spinning separates the elements. And so uh, uh, a centrifuge, they take these olives and they put it inside and they just dump a bunch in and the thing begins to spin and spin and spin and it spins at such a rapid rate it begins to extract the oil from the olive and that oil collects at the bottom and it's sent out the, the end and they collect it and then they bottle it and they put it on your market and this is what you buy. And so um, that's how olive oil is made. And so now it makes sense, right? When trouble comes, now you know. No, not yet. We got to go back a little bit further. We got to go back a little bit further. In the ancient world, how you made olive oil was a little bit different. Kind of the same, but a little bit different. Uh, they would take these large stones and they would dig out a basin inside of it and smooth it out. Then they would take another large stone and they would place it in the basin. Oftentimes it would have a, a, a long shaft that would come out of that stone. Then they would put the olives inside the basin and then they would rotate that stone stone, sometimes with a donkey, sometimes with a person, and they would rotate around and around and around. And what happens is that stone crushes the olive, and it makes pulp. And so when that's done, they take all the pulp out of the basin, and they have two pieces of, of fabric, and they, they lay one down, and then they put all the pulp on that one piece of fabric, and then they put another piece of fabric on top of the pulp. And then they take another large stone, sometimes in the same device that you see up there, and they place that fabric in there, and that stone goes around, or a stone is put on top of it. And the pressing of the pulp, what happens is that the oils begin to be extracted out of the pulp, and it goes through the fabric, and it's collected at a basin at the bottom, and they collect the olive oil this way. It's through this extreme pressing down, this extreme 
force, the breaking of the olive into a pulp and the pressing of the pulp produces this beautiful resource. You see, oil in the ancient world was a high-valued commodity. It was something that everyone sought after. It was traded all across the ancient empires. And uh, oil was used for all sorts of things. It was used for cooking, um, uh, like we do today. They would cook with it. Uh, uh, Women would put it, and, and men too, would put it on their skin so that they would shine in the sun. That would make, it's kind of like, like, like makeup or something to make them look more beautiful in the ancient world. They'd use olive oil for that. In biblical uh, terms, they would use olive oil to represent, or oil to represent the presence and blessing and acceptance of God, the approval of God. And so oil was used in spiritual uh, rituals, like, for instance, when Samuel goes to find a new king, and he uh, comes across David, and David is out in the field, and he goes to David, and he needs to anoint him to become the new king. He takes oil, and he pours it over his head. It symbolized the presence and acceptance and approval of God on someone's life. And so oil was used everywhere in the ancient, uh, ancient world. It took the the crushing and the pressing of the olive to produce out of it a valuable resource that people used. It took the pressing to produce a commodity. Now, the gospel writers tell us about a time at the end of Jesus's life where he is entering into a time of his life, his last week, where he knows it has finally arrived. He had been talking about it to his, his followers. They didn't understand what he was saying, but he had hinted at this idea that he's, he's going to suffer and die. And Jesus knows this. And so he takes this, this uh, festival called Passover, and he shares a meal with his followers. And, and, he, and he shares all sorts of things with them and commissions them and, and talks about what's going to happen. And then after the meal is done, Jesus goes on a walk with his followers to a place called Gethsemane. He goes on a walk outside the western wall, down a hill, and into a grove called Gethsemane, which means the oil press, also known as the pressing, the garden of the pressing. In Jesus' lowest time, where he's feeling all sorts of emotions like fear, sadness, brokenness, uh, he prays out to God, God, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. He goes into the pressing and experiences immense pressing. Luke writes it like this. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke says that Jesus prayed so earnestly that it was like drops of blood came down his brow. Or maybe in that moment, Jesus was pressed so much that what came out of him was the thing that brought deliverance to all of us. He goes to the pressing, and what comes out of him is the thing that saves all of us. Jesus enters into the pressing. And what's interesting when you look at this story and you begin to to, um, uh, think about the implications and what's happening around him, Jesus says something that uh, is a little different. Jesus, in his time of pressing, takes his friends with him. 
Jesus had done things on his own before in the past. He had gone up to the mountainside and he would pray alone. He would send them in the boat. He'd say, go across the sea. Um, I'll meet you there. And he'd go, I'm going up to pray. He would separate himself uh, 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 quite a bit and during times of prayer. But in this moment, this moment where most of us would want to be alone, most of us would not would want to kind of pull ourselves back. He actually invites people to enter into the pressing with him. He doesn't go it alone. Which leads us, obviously, to the conversation about prison reform. <laughs> right? No, not right. Stay with me. You see, in uh, the ancient world, prisons existed, just like they do now, in various capacities, and they'd always been a part of civilization in some way or another. Uh, prisons had always been there. In fact, one of the uh, oldest uh, uh, cultures that we have any documentation on is the Mesopotamian uh, uh, culture, and, uh, and they have an ancient codex, a, a rule book, kind of like Leviticus, um, but it has in it the, the, the earliest mention of prisons uh, in, in history. And, uh, and in this codex, it makes this mention of that if you are caught uh, kidnapping someone, of, of all things, uh, you would be sent away and imprisoned and have to pay 15 shekels of silver. That was the rule in this codex. Prisons were a part of how people dealt with things. Sometimes they would be taken into confinement. Sometimes they would be put into slave labor. Um, and, and sometimes they would be killed, depending on what the law uh, said that they should do. And one of, uh, uh, an example of a prison at, uh, in the ancient world is one in Rome. And uh, this is a picture of a prison in Rome. This is actually underneath the Colosseum. In Rome, this is a prison where they would keep prisoners under the Colosseum, uh, uh, maybe to bring them out for for the the, the battles that, that took place. Um, but what you see here, what you observe in this picture, is that uh, prisons were basically large rooms where they would just put a lot of people in there. So you have this large space where a lot of people would gather together, and there was usually a hole there. You can see that in the picture where they would use the restroom if they needed. And oftentimes they would be taken just a platter of whatever food was left over, and it was up to the inmates, the, the people in the prison, to figure out how to eat and, and who, gets, who gets what. It was a large space where people were put in together. And it wasn't until the 1800s when the Quakers developed a new system for prison reform, and they called it solitary confinement. Solitary confinement was a system of reform where they would take a prisoner for various reasons, and they would lock them away all by themselves in a small room for weeks and months at a time. There would often be maybe just a little slat at the door, or maybe underneath where they could pass food in. And oftentimes there was just a little hole at the top where light could come in. The Quakers, they uh, invented this and they started implementing it in around the 1800s where they would do this to prisoners. And uh, they would often put Bibles in the room. They thought that uh, the, the prisoners would read their Bibles, repent, and, and come out reformed. And, and, um, and this carried on, this system of, of, of treating prisoners carried on through time. In fact, many of our supermax prisons still have these sorts of things in place. But what's interesting is that what they thought was going to happen actually had an opposite 
effect. You see, many places across the world, uh, solitary confinement is being outlawed uh, because it's actually considered a form of torture. What they're finding out is that when people come out of these environments of solitary confinement for weeks on end and they come out of it, there are higher rates of suicide after, depression after. These people are, are having mental breakdowns and it's actually regressing their reform. Solitary confinement was actually hurting people. It's as if we are biologically engineered to need to be around people. It's as if we were created for relationships. It's as if God knew what he was talking about in Genesis chapter 2 when he said it's not good for man to be alone. We need relationships. We need each other. In times of pressings in our lives, we are not meant to go it alone. And this can be hard because sometimes people let you down, don't they? Sometimes people let you down. When Jesus was in the garden, he experienced that very thing from his friends. They let him down. Sometimes you, they fall asleep on you. Sometimes they betray you. But also sometimes they take up swords for you, like Peter did. And sometimes they sit at your feet at death, like John did at the crucifixion. It's a risk, isn't it? It's a risk. But the challenge for us, when we experiencing pressing, is to understand the reality that we need people around us. We need to invite people in. We can't do it alone. I lived most my life believing that I didn't need people. I, I, I grew up in a home that had parents divorced multiple times over. I have siblings that the addiction um, destroyed them. Um, and took a life of, of my brother. My family, uh, my parents spent most of their time trying to deal with the things that were happening around me, and so I was left alone. I had to learn to survive on my own. I had to learn to fight on my own, and I had a belief that I didn't need people because I can get through it by myself. That carried on to marriage, where I kept myself from my wife because I felt like I didn't need help, and I shouldn't open up myself to people because I'm going to be hurt because I had been hurt. And so I kept it in, and I kept it to myself. And had it not been for this church, during one of the lowest times of my own pressing where I didn't want anything to do with anybody had it not been for people in this church like Joel and Justin who would text me regularly how are you doing had it not been for my wife to, to pull me out and say we can't just hide away had it not been for this church, I don't know that I would be the person I am today because I was scared of vulnerability and transparency because I was scared people were gonna hurt me. And Jesus experienced that same thing, but here's something interesting about that story. When Jesus resurrected, he did something that many of us might not have. 
which leads us to a conversation about the most important meal of the day. What is the most important meal of the day? Breakfast. Yes, breakfast. Now, I know that's a myth, right? That's been debunked. But growing up for me, the most important meal of the day was breakfast. I love breakfast. And uh, um, I still think it's the most important meal of the day. I uh, made this breakfast. This is a real breakfast. I made this this morning. Yes, I can cook, all right? the only thing, though, I think my father would be very disappointed in me uh, showing this because uh, my, my family's Southern Alabama, and there's one thing missing on this plate. Can you guess what it might be? Grit. Look at you, see? So he'd be like shaking his head. Uh, we had grits all the time growing up. I love breakfast. My dad always made a big, wonderful breakfast like this. I love coffee in the morning, uh, 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 orange juice. It's, it's my favorite. In fact, there's a time of the year um, that it's a special day because Jane, my lovely, beautiful bride, she, uh, uh, she makes me uh, a breakfast like this with grits. I probably have grits once a year, and it's on my birthday. And, and uh, um, you know, and I say, hey, why don't we get grits more? And, and Jane's like, well, you can make it. Um, and she's right. Um, but uh, um, she's right. Uh, but I, I, love, I love breakfast. And, and the thing about breakfast, this was the idea. This is why it was always called like the most important meal of the day is breakfast. Because the idea was that as you start your day, this new day, you need the thing inside of you to get you going, right? You need to be full stomach and nourished so that you can get through your Day and, uh, and so that was the idea behind it, that you're, you're starting something new again, and you need this nourishment to get you going. So it was the most important meal of the day. And what's interesting is that when Jesus resurrected, he did quite a few things, if you read in the Gospels. And one of those things was in John chapter 21. What happens is that Jesus uh, shows up on the beach, and what he finds is his friends are off fishing. And so Peter and James are in the boat and they're, and they're fishing and Jesus calls out to them and says, hey, cast your net on the other side. And uh, they're like, oh, it sounds familiar. And they pull in this, this large harvest of fish and it clicks in Peter's head that it's Jesus and he jumps out of the boat. I mean, fully dressed, he jumps out and just swims ashore and embraces Jesus. Jesus coming out of the pressing didn't abandon his relationships. He went back to them. He embraced them. Most of us might not do that. We would go, well, no, these are the people that ran when I was getting a red. They were afraid. They didn't stand by me. They weren't here for me. They betrayed me. They disowned me like Peter. Said they didn't know me. Most of us would just go find new friends. Or be like Jesus going like, nah, we need to do this over. You guys failed. But Jesus said, no, no. I'm going to have breakfast with them. And he sits down at breakfast on the beach with them, and he makes a meal with them, and he cooks with them, and he eats with them. And we only have a little bit of that conversation that's recorded in in 21, and we'll get to that in a second. But I often wonder what that was like, because making a breakfast like this, I I, I woke up um, at six this morning, because I had to go to the store, I forgot to get sausage, and uh, came home, and you know, it was about a 15-ish, 20-minute kind of process. But even back, like that's easy, because I just turned on the skillet and I'm letting things fry and drinking my coffee this morning uh, and making this. But back then they had to make, they had to get to the wood. They had to start the fire. Um, maybe they cooked on hot rocks. Not sure. They had to fillet the fish or whatever, you know, however they made it, there was a process and they're sitting there talking. And what do you think they're talking about? 
You ever wonder that, the in-between of the stories? Like, what are they talking about? You ever wonder, like, when they're walking on the roads and you're going, I wonder what those conversations were like. And here's another moment where we have a conversation. I wonder if Jesus opened up to them. You really hurt me, guys. Peter, that, that hurt. I know you were afraid. I know you were scared. Do you think Jesus was hurt by that? Probably. Maybe. What other conversations? Do you think Peter's like, I am so sorry. I am so sorry I denied you. That's not, I mean, I was just, I was scared. I was afraid. I just responded what was natural. I didn't know what to do. I'm so sorry. Jesus has breakfast with them. And he brings out of them a renewal of hope and a future. You see, Jesus wasn't the only one that went through oppressing back in the garden. There were others that went through oppressing. Peter went through oppressing. Judas went through oppressing. You see, Peter's pressing might have been a little bit different. He, he was afraid. He was scared. He was worried about what was going to happen next. When the guards came, he was the one that pulled out the sword and whacked off the ear of a guard. He responds in violence in Jesus' pressing, and he responds with denial when Jesus is on trial. He was facing oppressing. He didn't know what to do. Judas was facing oppressing. He, he, he wanted so badly for God's kingdom to be restored and that the people of Israel would take their rightful place in Jerusalem and, and eradicate the Roman Empire from their occupation. He believed in Jesus and what Jesus was going to do, even though he misunderstood the point of it. And so he was under immense pressure and he thought to himself, eh, if, if I can just, you know, get something started, if I, if I can help and, and get the guards there, maybe then Jesus will stand up and will fight and will take over and that'll be the beginning. And so he betrays Jesus. He was under oppressing. But there was a difference in their responses because we all experience oppressing but how we choose to deal with it. Peter, the next time we see him, we find him on a beach with his friends. He leans into relationship. Judas pulls away, runs, and kills himself. Both had pressures. One invested back into relationships, the other pulled away. And if we're ever going to experience the joy of breakfast in the morning where new beginnings can take place, we have to be willing to engage in relationship with, with others, even though it's risky. Even though it's risky. Jesus modeled investing back into relationship. And the beauty and the joy of the morning and the newness provides opportunity for us to take a step forward, but it must come through relationships with others. Now, here's the thing about the pressing. The pressing happens, and what happens is it brings out of us 
the things necessary, the things lying dormant within us that God sees that he wants to bring out so that we can then become the people God has called us to be. And Peter's final moment with Jesus is one where Jesus reveals to him and calls him into the reality of what the pressing represented. It was bringing out of him, Peter, feed my sheep. Now it's time. You've gone through it, and now you're able to take your next step. Had he not gone through it, the question would be, was he able to take that next step? And I think in the writing of James, who most scholars believe was the brother of Jesus, he makes this interesting uh, statement in James chapter 1 that I think is relevant to this conversation. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance run its course, because when it does, you will be made perfect, not lacking anything. James riffs on this idea. He doesn't say be happy when you face trials of many kinds, right? He didn't say be happy. Because it doesn't feel happy. And we can't just go, oh, this is great. I'm so happy. But we must understand that when the pressing is taking place, something is happening inside of us that God is revealing, that he knows is inside of all of us. It's revealing the essence of our nature. God wants to use it to make you whole, to make you perfect. And if we are ever to survive the pressing in our lives, we have to be around others. This is why the church is so beautiful and can be so beautiful. So you don't have to do it alone. And if you want to see breakfast in the morning, you got to walk alongside others. Here's some thoughts I want to leave with you this morning. One, it's okay to not be okay. Let me just say that again. It's okay to not be okay. Sometimes we think as Christians, we've got to have it all put together. We've got to have it all figured out. Can I just say the world needs to see a little bit more of Christians that don't have it all figured out? Because the example sometimes we set of perfection is a little unattainable for most. It's okay to not be okay. Would you be willing to live vulnerably and transparently? It's okay. And in that reality, when you're not okay, who are your people? When you are in the moment of pressing, who are your people? And if you don't have people, we want to invite you here at Real Life to join us together as we walk through life, journey through the pressings together, we have groups that meet, homes where you can come in and you can sit down with others and go, I'm not okay. And they go, yeah, no, I understand. What can we pray with you about? What do you need? What's happening? You need people. So would you find people? And we, we wanna be that for you if you're willing. My ask is, 
When you're not okay, who are your people that you go to? Next, who are you for others? Because there are people in your life that God has put around you that you are uniquely suited to love them well through their pressing, to let them know that they're not alone, to let them know they'll get through it and to persevere. Hang tight. I, I can't take this pain from you. I can't rescue you, but I can encourage you. You're not alone. You're not alone. And so lastly, I would ask, would you just not go it alone? Please, don't go it alone. You need people. Judas ran in isolation. Peter leaned in. And because of that, he had breakfast with Jesus and started a new journey of feeding sheep. If you're going to make it to breakfast, you got to share your life with others. As we get ready for communion, our leaders are going to come forward, and they, if you didn't grab communion on your way in, I invite you to just lift your hand. If you're wanting to take communion, you can lift your hand, and they'll, they'll find you and, um, and make sure you got, uh, got communion this morning. Um, no, you, there you go. Yep, there's a few of us in here. But as we prepare for this time of communion, this is an opportunity for us to reflect. This is an opportunity for us to think through what Jesus is inviting us into. Because there are some of you in this room, no doubt, that are in the midst of oppressing. And the weight of life is crushing you. It's pressing in on you. And Jesus is inviting you into the reality that you shouldn't go through that alone. I mean, Jesus modeled, if he, if he brought people with him in his lowest time, right, we can't be above it either. Don't go it alone. And if you don't know who to talk to, come talk to me. Come talk to Justin. Come talk to Jenny. We'd love to walk alongside you in whatever your pressing is. We're here for you. We love you. We see you. As we go through this time of communion, take a moment to reflect and ask, what is Jesus calling me into in this time of my life?